0: So, what to do after 20 sermons in the Psalms? Um, I prayed a lot about it, and I got a fast answer. As I said, we've been looking at Jesus. We've been looking at the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ in the Psalms. For that is what the Psalms are. It's a picture of who He is. And it seemed good to go and hear what He says. And I thought, you know, maybe we'll look at some of the really hard things that Jesus says about belonging to Him. If you're ever going to be ready to hear the hard things, it's right after looking at Jesus Christ for 20 sermons in the Psalms. Right? You're ready. And I know many of you, if not most of you, have not been here for the whole time. You've not heard all the sermons. But there's no better time to turn your eyes from Jesus in the Psalms and go into the Gospels and hear what He says. The challenge He has for anyone who would be His disciple. He says some pretty strong things. You heard the text read. You know, here's the deal. We come to Jesus on His terms, right? It's never on your terms. (laughs) You know, I've seen this a lot in 30 plus years of ministry. Um... People think, well, Jesus sounds kind of interesting. He might help me out in my life. It might work well to add Him to my life. I'll come to Him based on this. You don't get to do that, beloved. You don't get to do that. You come to Him on His terms or you don't come. It's just how it works. He's God, and oh, guess what? Nobody else is. You're not God. You don't get to determine the terms. He sets out the terms. But if you will indulge me just for a minute, I have to start the sermon like this, right? I want to just remember some of the things we saw about Him in the Psalms. This is how I want to start the sermon. And I want to ask you, if you believe these things are true, how can He not be the most important person in your life. If you believe what these psalms say, how can He not be? And as I prayed, how can He not be the center of your life? Jesus Christ is the incomparable, incomprehensible, indescribable King of heaven and earth. Psalm 2410. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Jesus Christ is the magnificent, transcendent God who, in, who is infinitely above all of His creation. As David says, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 145.3 Jesus Christ is the omnipotent God of absolute sovereign power and authority. David writes, The Lord has established His throne In the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 103.19 Jesus Christ is the omnipotent Creator God who has spoken to an estimated two trillion galaxies into existence. He said, let them be, and they were. Now, for a thinking man, that's warrant enough to worship Him. That's warrant enough. David says, for the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Psalm 19.1 Jesus Christ is the genius God who thought you up. He designed you. He brought you into being. He wrote the software that runs your DNA. The your 3.5 billion characters in your DNA, He wrote that. You are His property. He created you. You are His intellectual property. Whether you love Him or not, but He is the genius God. You know, you remember what David said in Psalm 139, 13, "...For You formed my inward parts. You weaved me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made." Jesus is the awesome, fearsome, reigning God. Psalm 97, 1, 4, and 5. "...The Lord reigns, and the earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth." Jesus Christ is the God who hears and who saves and who delivers. David says that He is a savior of those who take refuge in Him. Psalm 17:7. 7. David says, "He inclined to hear my cry and brought me out of the pit." Psalm 40, verse two. Jesus Christ is the groom who relentlessly pursues his bride, that being the church. And forgive me for using Eugene Peterson's paraphrase here, but I do love it from the 23rd Psalm, verse 6. David says, Your beauty and love chase after me every day of my life. <laughs> How can you not love that? Jesus Christ is the holy committed, all in, always there, always with us, Savior. David says, He encamps around us and rescues His people, Psalm 34, 7. The psalmist says the Lord is our refuge. He is our strength. A very present help in trouble. He is with us. Psalm 46. Jesus Christ is the God who puts thanksgiving, delight, joy, and a new song in our hearts. David says, Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful joy singing Psalm 101 1 and 2. If you believe that about Him, does it really matter what it costs to walk with Him? Make no mistake. Jesus says, if you want to go with Me, it will cost you everything. It's free grace. It's free grace. But as we see in the text tonight, Jesus says it will cost you everything. And my point is, if you believe what the Psalms say, how can you not be compelled... To come to Christ and to know Him and to love Him and to serve Him and to make much of Him and to treasure and adore Him and delight in Him. Now, if you don't believe the Psalms, okay, go live your life. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. But if you believe the Word of God, then you must come to Christ on His terms. You must, beloved. You must. It's what the whole Bible is about. God built and designed humanity to delight in Him. You were built to delight in God. That's what you were designed to do. That's what you were created to do. It's what the whole Bible is about. It's what the incarnation is about. It's what the crucifixion is about. It's what the resurrection is about. It's what the second coming is about. It's what all eternity will be about. That you and I will love and worship and delight in God. You say, I think I'm going to get bored in eternity. Never! It'll never happen. You'll have another heart exploding experience with the living God. Every nanosecond of eternity, beloved. I'm always amused at people who say, well, I'll get bored in heaven. You know, if you think you'll get bored in heaven, there's no reason for you to go there. But those of us who have caught a glimpse of Jesus, we know there'll be no boredom there. You remember the lesson that God taught C.S. Lewis in the Psalms? Um, There were many, I'm sure, but the one that he's famous for is he couldn't understand why God was demanding that humanity praise him. He said, you know, Lewis says he sounded like an old woman looking for her next compliment, right? He didn't understand it. But then the Holy Spirit taught him that praise is the consummation of joy, right? Praise is simply the expression of joy. So what is God saying to you and to me and to every man and woman on the planet? Praise me. What is the implicit invitation there? What is it? God is saying, come and enjoy me. That's what God is saying in the Psalms. Come and enjoy me. I made you to enjoy me, but you think sin and your love of self and your self-absorption will make you happier. God says, no, praise me. Let me be the consummation of your joy and I will be forever. You know, that's why human romance cools, right? You get to the end of that human doesn't mean you fall out of love, but the 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 heat, the heat. Those of you who've been in love, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you never get to the end of Jesus. <laughs> never. Forever, man. I always like to say it's like a sacred romance. So God commands us to praise him. And every time you read that, I want you to remember that's God's invitation for you to enjoy Him. What does the old catechism say? The old Protestant catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I want to ask you, is that what it's like for you when you get up on Monday morning? Is that part of your thought process? Is that part of who you are? Today, I will find a way to glorify God, and I will enjoy Him forever. I love George Mueller, the the great uh, church uh, uh, minister, and I think he was in the 19th century in London. He did all this good work for orphans and stuff. But he said, you know, I think he he helped 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. But he said, you know, the first thing, the first order of the day for me is to be happy in God, right? This is so important for each of us as Christians. I know some of you are not Christians. I understand that. But for the Christian to delight yourself in God every day, to be happy in God, then you can magnify Him in the world as the unbelievers around you see how delighted you are in God. I think I shared this with you a couple of weeks ago. Randy Alcorn, uh, American theologian, he says, if we listen to Jesus, we will never be the same. And then he says a beautiful thing. He says, and we will never want to be. <laughs> You'll never want to be the same. You, can't, you don't want to go back. You know, I, I'm fond of saying there are no backward glances for the Christian. You don't ever look back at the world. It's too small. The world's too small compared to the God of the Psalms. Are you kidding me? You think the world can hold my attention after you catch a glimpse of the living God of the Psalms? No, beloved. Something's deeply wrong and profoundly wrong if we are unamazed at Jesus Christ and what He's done. Something is wrong. So the fruit of looking at Jesus in the Psalms, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm a lot more free than I was back on May 15th. I think it was May 15th, 2016 of this year when we started to, to look into the Psalms. I, I'm much more free. I'm much more emboldened. I'm much more encouraged. You know, you get my age, you just want to finish well, Right? You guys have a long way to go. I want to finish well. I just want to finish well. That's what I want. And when I look at Jesus, I realize I can finish well because He is who He is. It's not about who I am. It's about who He is, right? It's about who He is. So it seemed good to listen to Jesus for the last few weeks of the year. Particularly some of the difficult things he says to those who would come after him so the next four this sermon in the next three maybe four i don't remember exact i don't remember the calendar this is the gospel according to jesus it's not the gospel according to the internet guy um it's not the gospel according to the pope it's not uh, the gospel according to to it's the gospel according to jesus these are the red words okay these are the red words This is what the Son of God is saying. Verse 25, Luke chapter 14. We're at the end, or close to the end of Jesus' ministry. Let me just give you the context. He's he's just traveling through the countryside. He's doing miracles. He's preaching. And as he often did, he has attracted a multitude. Now, great multitudes were going along with him. I'm in verse 25 of Luke 14. And he turned. And he said to them, um, "Yeah, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus often did this, and you know the disciples were jazzed, man. They were jazzed. They had multitudes of people following uh, uh, their teacher, their rabbi, the 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 man that they had attached their wagon to. Multitudes were coming. The disciples were they were juiced up, man. They were excited about this, right?" And they want Jesus to turn around and say something appealing. Something that will appeal to the flesh. Something that will make people want to follow Him all the more. But you know what? You know what you learn in this text? Jesus has never been interested in numbers for numbers' sake. You know what Jesus is interested in? Conversion. That's what He's interested in. He's interested in conversion. So, so the disciples were jazzed. They were jazzed. And I just want to point this out to you. And I've said this to you many times. Some people like to make some dichotomy that Jesus is not talking about salvation. Listen, there's no distinction between discipleship and salvation. It's always the same thing. That's why He says it to the multitude. He's not saying it to the disciples exclusively. He's saying it to the multitude. He says, if you want Me, you have to hate your family. If you want Me, you have to hate your own life. If you want Me, you have to sell all your possessions. That's what it costs if you want Me. And if you look at the verses... Verse 26, you cannot be My disciple if this is not true of you. Verse 27, you cannot be My disciple if this is not true of you. Verse 33, you cannot be My disciple if this is not true. Verses 26 and 27, if anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. That's not how you keep a multitude. Right? You agree? You don't say that if it's about numbers with you. You don't say that. And if it's about numbers with you, you don't even preach that. How many of you have ever heard this preached? Preached? It's just too hard. People don't want to hear it. Let me pray a prayer, do an ordinance, and come to church when it's not too inconvenient. So, you know, I'll be a Christian. That'll make me a Christian. Tell me that makes me a Christian. And if you won't tell me that makes me a Christian, then I'll go down the street and find some church who'll let me do some uh, brain-dead ritual. So I'll have some hell insurance in my back pocket, right? Jesus loved people way too much (laughs) to let them settle for a brain-dead, heart-dead religion. He always told them the truth. Jesus says, if you really want to come to Me, you have to hate your whole family and even your own life. He wasn't interested in shallow commitments. Some of you in here are probably interested in a shallow commitment. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. He's not interested in nominal followers. Some of you might be interested in being a nominal follower. You're wasting your time. He's not interested in you settling for anything less than a passionate relationship with him. And he will if you are his, he will not let you settle. (laughs) He loves you too much. He will not let you so, we've been talking a lot about it. It's, always, it's about the greatest commandment. It's come up over and over and over the last, I don't know, seems like the last two months. It just keeps coming up. What is the greatest commandment? What does Jesus say? This is what Jesus is interested in. This is what Jesus wants for you. Because if this is true for you, you will have God-sized joy in your life. And you'll have it forever. What is the greatest commandment? Someone tell me. That you would... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what Jesus Christ is interested in. He will not let you settle for anything less than that. Now, you can deceive yourself into thinking, well, I'm a Christian uh, you know, uh, on the side when it's convenient. Well, you're not walking with the biblical Jesus. You may have some cartoon Jesus in your head. But you're not walking with your Creator The most oft-repeated words of Jesus in the Gospels are, follow me. What does it mean to follow someone? If you're going to really follow someone, it's all in, right? You have to be all in. This is the language of Jesus Christ. This is the Gospel according to Jesus. These are the red words. You're either all in or you're not in at all. It's the clear meaning of the gospel according to Jesus. Follow me, he says. In the second, most oft repeated saying of Jesus, it appears six times. In the Gospels, twice in Matthew, twice in Luke, once in Mark, once in John, and I'm going to read it to you from Matthew 10.39. Listen to this language. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Now here's the Jim Albright version paraphrase, okay, to help you understand what's being said there. If you found your life in the world, in the temporal, if you are preeminently enamored and infatuated with this life and the things of this world, you will lose it all. Ultimately, you'll lose it all. You're here for a few moments as compared to eternity. When you die, you will lose it all. But, Jesus says, if I am uppermost in your heart and in your mind and in your life, if you have given yourself away to Me, if you have indeed found real, lasting, satisfying, infinite, eternal, God-sized life, then you're mine, right? Jesus says, if you don't hate your whole family, you cannot be My disciple. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, My disciples love Me supremely. That's what Jesus is saying. And although none of us do it perfectly, It is our heart's desire to love Him like this. Obviously, the complete Gospel is not found in Luke 14, 25-33, but the complete mind and heart of the converted man or woman is found here. It's found here. The mindset is, the mindset of supreme love and devotion to Jesus Christ, even above my family. Matthew 10 amplifies and clarifies Luke 14. I'm going to turn real quick and read Matthew 10, 34 to 36. Matthew 10, 34 to 36. Jesus says, Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Some of you already know this is true. You know that when you became a follower of Jesus those in your family who are not begin to distance themselves from you. And the more you loved him, the less they could relate to you. Some of you personally experienced this. You know, John Jesus talks about this in John 15. He talks about How the world is hostile toward Jesus and the world will be hostile toward the the Christian, the enmity between the believer and the unbeliever. Sadly, it happens even, even within families. I've seen it. Yes, Jesus can heal a broken family. There's no question about it. But when the unbelievers in the family will not submit to Him, there can be much turmoil and heartache and difficulty. You know, it's particularly true in the first century, right? The people Jesus is talking to, if they made a profession of faith in Christ, what? It was all over for them. Their life was gone, right? Their family kicked them out. And they were kicked out of the synagogue. It was all over for the first century Jew. Just like it is now for the Orthodox Jew or the Muslim. And some of you have experienced it too. Maybe in a a nominally Christian family, but then, man, you got jazzed, right? You got converted. You got born again and everything's changed. And Jesus really is the center of your life, right? The rest of your family doesn't get it at all. They don't get it at all. It's just part of the deal sometimes. It's just part of the deal. Let me read verse 37 to you from Matthew 10. It says, He who loves, and I want you, this, this is a commentary on the text we just read over in Luke. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Of me. This clarifies Luke 14. Of course, Jesus is not calling you to literal emotional hate to your family. You are commanded to love your family, right? You know, Scripture interprets Scripture. This is why you need to know the Bible. All of the Bible is, you know, none of us can have total knowledge, but we can become students and we can have a systematic understanding. Of Scripture, Luke fourteen is a Hebraism. It's common in the Bible. It's a Semitic expression of loving someone less. That's all it is. Jacob, I have loved Esau, I have hated. It's it's all through the Scriptures. It's not about a visceral, emotional, psychological hatred. It's not about that. It's about it's about Loving someone less. That's what it's about. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, My disciples love me more than they love their spouses and their children, and their parents, and their uncles, and their cousins. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. It's what he is clearly saying. Jesus says, my disciples love me supremely. It's a dominating love. It's a matchless love. It's true conversion. While most professed Christians don't love Jesus like this, the real Christian does. None of us are perfect at this. And sometimes it's hard and difficult. But our love for Christ will win out. You know, I've seen this in my adult life, this deification of the family. I know that you've probably seen it too. This deification of the family. that Well, the family... I make all my decisions principally based on how it affects the family. Can I tell you how wrong that is? The Christian makes every decision based on the Lordship of Christ and then implements that in the family. And oh, guess what? Uh, The truth of God always works better. You know the best thing Karen and I ever did for our kids? Was to pack up and leave. Leave. They were all adults when we left. We didn't leave them on the curb. And whether they understand it yet or not, and I I know most of them don't yet understand, and our grandkids are too young to understand, but the best thing we ever did for them was to show them that we love Christ more than anyone or anything. Do you know how powerful a, a lesson that is for a child? even an adult child. You want to really love your kids? You want to really love your kids? Let them see your devotion to Jesus Christ. Let them see that. Even if they don't understand it yet, let them see that. So, Verse twenty-seven: Whatever does not carry, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. This is the third most oft-repeated saying of Jesus in the Gospels. In in the Gospels, five times. What does it mean? You know, one thing you learn in seminary. The first thing you learn in seminary is uh, elementary principles of interpretation. You know, you hear people say, well, my cross is my mother in law. It's my job. It's my health. It's my financial situation. And they use this verse out of context. No. What did Peter, James, and John hear when Jesus said this? What did they hear? Pick up your cross. What did they hear Jesus say? Die! Come and die! Die to yourself. That's what a cross was, it's not a metaphor. Come and die to yourself, and then you can go with me. You say, Jim, that sounds extreme. Yes, it's extreme. It is extreme. Jesus is the most extreme person who ever walked the planet. It is extreme. It's extremely extreme. There is a kind of death for the Christian. But what's the ultimate reality of Christianity? Someone tell me, what is it? What is it? It's the resurrection. God's calling you to die to silly, temporal, passing away stuff and come and have Him and eternal things. There is a kind of death in going with Jesus, but there's an awesome resurrection. Right? That's what Christianity is about. The resurrection. It's always about the resurrection. Yes, there's a kind of death for anyone who will go with Jesus. But there is that beautiful resurrection. You guys know Matthew 13. number of parables there about true conversion. And there are two there that I reference frequently. You remember the man that found the treasure which is Jesus in the field. And what did He do? He sold all that He had to have the field, to possess the field. There was another parable there about the, uh, the, the man who found the pearl of great price, right? And He sold all that He had that He could have the pearl. These are just uh, parables, analogies, metaphors for what it's like to truly meet Christ Jesus and understand that He's the most valuable person in the world. and if you lose your family, and if you lose all your stuff, and if you lose your life, it's worth it. If you look at Jesus Christ in the Psalms, you realize just how true that is. It's worth it. If you lose it all, it's worth it. You know, the Christian never actually loses anything. You get this, right? (laughs) you hear this testimony from missionaries who are acclaimed. They come back and they're acclaimed. Oh, they gave up so much. They did such great work. Every true missionary will tell you, I never gave up one thing that God didn't pay back to me a million times over. In His presence, in my life, and in my heart, and in my soul, and in my mind, we never really give up anything. You know what the natural man hears when I read these words? The natural man hears loss. I'm hearing loss. I'm not interested in loss. I don't like what Jim's preaching. I probably won't come back next week. Right? This is what happened to the multitudes. They left him. He had 11 guys around him at the end. 11 guys. The regenerate man or woman... When they hear these words, they hear life. They hear gain. It's what Paul, the Apostle Paul's talking about. He says, man, I, you remember Paul's the perfect Jew, man. He had it going on, right? He was the big man on at the temple grounds. He was a Pharisee. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had it all. He says, it's done to me now that I've met Jesus. It's exactly what he says. It's refuse to me now that I've met Jesus Christ. Let's finish. Here, you heard the text read. He's talking about uh, the man who builds a tower and he hasn't counted the cost or the man who's going to war and he hasn't counted the cost. Jesus is clearly saying, you must Count the cost. Don't come to me in some flippant way. Some emotional way. Don't let anybody manipulate you in a psychological way. And you know, a lot of preachers are really good at psychological manipulation. I hate that. I know it's a stench in the nostrils of God. You need to count the cost and decide if you want to really go with Jesus or if you just want to play a game with Jesus. And I want to tell you, I lovingly tell you, do not play a game with your Creator God. It'll be the worst decision of your life. Go with him and live. Go with him and live. Paul says whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Christ. Jesus says, I want you to sit down and I want you to think about it. Can you love me like that? C.S. Lewis uh, summarizes much of what we've been talking about this evening uh, in mere Christianity. Let me just read it to you. It's a very short couple sentences. Christ doesn't say, I want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. What does He say? Who knows? Jesus says, What? I want you. I want you. And he will not settle. Lewis says, He will not bargain with you. A little religion's not going to get it done with him. Lewis says, I want this is this is the Lord speaking. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, I've come to kill it. Half measures are worthless. I will give you a new self. Then he says, there is no bargaining with Him. Verse 33, I've already referenced it. No one of you can be My disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Boy, that's a lot different than pray this prayer, do this ordinance and you're in. But how do we understand this? Is Jesus saying you have to literally sell everything to be a Christian? No. It means you've come to understand that you don't own anything, right? Some of you think you own some stuff. Well, it's a good thing you came tonight because I'm going to tell you you don't own anything, it's all God's, and it's all on loan to you. What he's talking about is stewardship here, as opposed to ownership. Some of you live as if all the resources God pours into your life really belong to you, and you are uh, making decisions on them, on them in an autonomous way. You're not talking to God about it. It's what He's talking about. You don't have to sell everything to be a Christian, but you would you would sell everything. If He called you to it, you would. You would do it. In fact, you've already done the deal. It's in your heart. You've done the deal. The deal's done. Lord, I realize I'm a steward. I realize nothing I have is mine, it is yours. Tell me what to do with it. It's what the Lord is talking about. Our love for Christ and our devotion to Christ will dominate. I'm going to repeat this. This is the theme of the text. Jesus says, the man or woman who will come after Me, they will love Me more than they love their family. Verse 26. Jesus says, the man or woman who comes after Me will love Me more than they love their very own life. Jesus says, the man or woman who comes after Me will love Me way more than their stuff. One more CS Lewis quote and I'm done. In the weight of glory, CS Lewis likens Jesus Christ to the sea. And he says, "A lot of people go down to the sea. They go down to the sea. And they dabble and they splash, but they never get in." This is the imagery, right? They never get they never get in. They just dabble and splash which is, as C.S. Lewis says, of no value to anyone. (laughs) Remember, Jesus is the sea. He says they're careful not to get out of their own depth, holding on to the lifeline that connects them to all things temporal. And then Lewis summarizes and and concludes this way. The lifeline is really a death line. Swimming lessons are much better than a lifeline to... The shore. God and Satan agree. Dabbling and splashing are of little consequence. What matters, what God desires, and what Satan fears is, the, is precisely that further step out of your depth, out of your control, and into the deeps. It's what I'm challenging you to do tonight to go deeper with God. Go deeper. Some of you don't know Him. Seek Him. Jeremiah 29. If you seek me with all your heart, what? I will be found by you. We talked about it last week. Don't be a fool. The man, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The overt atheist and the covert atheist who has God on his lips but not in his heart. Don't be a fool. Either way, Jesus says, it'll cost you everything to come with me. (laughs) Oh, and then he says, oh, and I'm going to give you the kingdom of God. I want to tell you it's the best thing, the best proposition you'll ever get. I promise it's the best proposition you'll ever get. So, you get to make the decision. Yeah, the Psalms. Listen. You say, Jim, I have a hard time getting freed up. Well, you just need to go look at Jesus in the Psalms. You know, if you've caught a glimpse of Christ in the Psalms, you can go to Luke chapter 14. You can hear it. You can hear these hard things Jesus says and you go, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. I know the world and some, even some of you think that Christianity is just this nice little religious habit that some people do. And what I try to convince you of every time you walk in here is that it's an encounter with the living God. And if you really believe what He says about Himself in the Psalms, you can be a disciple too. You can be a disciple. You can walk with Christ. You can bring glory to His name for these few moments you have left on this planet. Beloved, I want you to understand, this is the highest privilege anyone has ever offered to you. It's the highest honor. It, it doesn't matter who you are. It makes your life meaningful. As a Christian, I've often said, and I'm sorry, I'm done. I've often said, I am a preacher of the Gospel. I couldn't stoop to be President of the United States. I couldn't stoop that low. What I do matters infinitely more than what any president will ever do. Our king, our potentate, our pope. I preach the gospel. The biblical gospel. Listen, man, I want you to have it. I want you to have it. I want you to have it, man. I want you to have all that God has for you. I want you to have it. I don't want you to settle for religion. I want you to have it. I've got to shut up now. But I want you to have it. We'll talk about it in the coming weeks. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You have given it to us. Thank You that it's easy to understand. Help us, Father. Help us to believe. Help us to repent. Help us to give ourselves away to You, even as You have given Yourself away to us. Help us, Lord, we pray. For we are weak. You know our frame. We are made of dust. But we are made in Your image. And we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We love You, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Your matchless and mighty name. Amen.